I would uh, invite and encourage you to open up your Bible this morning to Psalm 13, and then our message uh, will be um, based on Psalm 13. I'll be preaching through these six verses. Psalm 13, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of God. Now let's pray. Our Father, now as we uh, turn our attention to your word, as we find it here in Psalm 13, Lord, we ask you for your, your help. May your spirit be with us, Lord, helping us to see the truth of your word, to recognize that here in these verses lies hope for everyone. Hope for everyone who looks to you in faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to do that. Whether or not we walked in here this morning with faith in Christ, I pray that you would help each one of us today as we hear this message to rest our faith and our hope in you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been taught how to fight? There once was a time when it was uh, expected that fathers would, would train their sons how to fight. Now, not to start fights, but to know what to do in order to defend themselves or to defend others. Now, my father didn't, didn't spend a lot of time teaching me how to fight, but I remember he taught me, you know, some of the, the basics uh, of, of how to, you know, defend yourself, how to, you know, hold up your, your fists, okay, in order to uh, protect your, your face and your, your midsection, how, how to lead with your weak hand, all right, and of course, to then throw punches with your, with your strong hand, that's your reach, and these, of course, are just real, real basic instructions, but, but it helped me to feel prepared. There were many moments in my young life, not so much now in my adult life, but in my young life in school, where I was real thankful that I at least knew a little bit about how to do that. I believe it's still important for fathers to, to teach their children how to fight in order to protect themselves uh, or others around them from attacks, but, but for, for Christians, for believers, there is another type of of fighting that we all must learn how to do. 
God's word makes it clear that we have an enemy. We all must learn that at times throughout our lives, our faith will be attacked by the enemy. His goal is to to shake us, is to cause us to, to doubt that what we believe about the gospel is true. His desire is that we would believe his lies, that we would then turn away from God's promises revealed in his word. And so we must learn to fight. We must be trained to be able to fight the fight of faith. Now, I understand that that this concept may be new to some of you. I know that within the kind of evangelical Christianity that, that I grew up in, uh, there was this understanding that, that once, once you prayed to receive Christ into your heart, that, that from that point on, well, you really had nothing to worry about. You, you, you were saved, and you could never lose your salvation, and, and therefore, it really didn't matter what you did or how you felt. You were a Christian. Therefore, many people were, who, who, who were taught that have just kind of, you know, kind of coasted through their lives. They're, they're just kind of you know, made their way, maybe going to church every Sunday, but just kind of coasting through their lives, never really concerned at all about pursuing growth in their faith. And there's probably another practice in the church from a, a different tradition that, that leads people to believe that as long as their parents had them baptized, and then that they went through confirmation at their church, that they now have nothing else that they need to do. That those within that tradition then just tend to also you know, coast through the rest of their lives. They see no need to grow in their faith, nor do they see any need to fight for their faith, to fight the fight of faith. Now, I don't believe the Bible teaches that praying a certain prayer or just raising your hand at a gospel invitation assures anyone that they are saved. The Bible also does not teach that your salvation is assured if you were baptized as a baby and later went through confirmation class at your church. It's pretty clear in John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying there, the only ones who will see or be a part of the kingdom of God will be those who have had a spiritual transformation. Those whose hearts have been made new. They they now love the Lord and they've humbled themselves before him, acknowledging their sin and, and admitting that without the Lord's saving grace at work in their lives that they would be lost. Later in in the same chapter, John chapter 3, Jesus makes clear that those who are saved are those who have believed in God's Son, that He is the Savior, and that they now live to obey His Word. So the hope of every true Christian then does not lie in themselves or with something that they have done or had done to them. The hope of every true Christian lies within what Jesus Christ, the Savior, 
has done for them in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. Believing the promises of the gospel is what gives us hope and builds up our faith and stokes the flame of our love for God and for others. Our enemy's main strategy is to deceive us into doubting the promises of the gospel. His plan is is to cast doubt in our hearts that what God's word says is the truth. And if our faith in God's word is weak, well, we will struggle to hang on to God's promises. And if we struggle to hang on to his promises, we will struggle to obey his word. If we struggle to obey his word, we'll struggle to glorify Christ. And we'll struggle to point other people to him. When the grace of God becomes small in our affections, that is, in, in, our, in our loves, then the things that our enemy offers us, like the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life, those things will look bigger and more attractive to us. So therefore, we must fight. We must fight the fight of faith. And so today we are, we are beginning a brief series on the fight of faith by considering how one well-known believer fought that fight, fought the fight of faith in the midst of a dark time for him. We see that here in, in Psalm 13. Our main theme then from these verses is that days of trial will come for us. Therefore, we must determine to fight for faith in and through them. Days of trial will come for us, therefore we must determine to fight for faith in and through them. The psalm is very helpfully divided up into three sections. It's, it's just six verses with uh, two verses in each section. The psalm uh, begins in verses one and two with five revealing questions. Let's take a look here at these, at, at these questions. And I'm labeling this, uh, this first section, a crisis of faith for a believer. A crisis of faith for a believer. So here's these, these, uh, these very personal questions from the heart of a believer in the midst of a great trial. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me. Maybe you have asked similar questions um, to what David asked here, or maybe, maybe, maybe you, you never have asked them at all. But have you ever been in a situation where you believed you were just at the end of your rope? That you, that you seriously doubted your ability to endure the trial that you were in for much longer? That is where these questions are coming from. David is a believer. That is clear in this psalm. But the crisis that he is in has got to such a point where he seriously doubts that he can put up with it much more. He is feeling stretched to the point of breaking. And he needs help, and he feels like he is not receiving much help. So maybe maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've been in a similar place. His first set of questions are directed right to God, and and kind of shockingly, 
they are not so much questions as they are accusations. He's accusing the Lord of forgetting him, that God has turned his back on him. I mean, think about this. David feels like he has been abandoned by God. His experience has been so discouraging that, that he feels like all of his prayers are being ignored by, by God, that, that God may not even be paying any attention to him. The Lord feels very distant, far off from David. His faith is in crisis. If, you're, if you have questions like this, your faith is in crisis. He's seriously questioning God's love and care for him, and he wants to know how long this will continue because he doesn't think he can take any more. Now, let's remember that this is King David, the Lord's anointed here, the man after God's own heart, the same David whose faith in the Lord led him to take on Goliath with just a sling and five stones. This is the same David who was the author of the great majority of our favorite psalms, like, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Those are David's words. Or Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Those are his words as well. And even Psalm 139, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, there were times in his life where David's faith was under attack, where he honestly had questions about whether God was really being good to him and whether God might have left him. So friends, if David would have to endure such trials... If David had to fight for his faith, then be assured of this. You will have to fight for your faith as well. You will go through similar trials. You will go through times where your faith is stretched to what you think is the limit. For that is where David was here in Psalm 13. In a second set of questions, David is looking inward. He's looking inward. There in verse 2, he reveals that, that this situation, uh, or he reveals what the situation was doing in his soul, in his inner life. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The NIV, if you have the NIV, has a helpful paraphrase of this, of this question. It says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts which is really what that's, what that's saying. How long must I take counsel in my soul? How, must, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Maybe you are better at this than I am, but man, when I'm in the midst of a crisis or a stressful situation, I find that I just can't stop thinking about it. Just constantly questioning myself, you know, trying to, to focus on other things, but always coming back to the crisis. And then, you know, when I lay down to sleep at night, I kind of have a little distraction. I get, get, get ready for bed and think about what's going to happen tomorrow and plan ahead for, for tomorrow. And then there as I lay down and hit my head on that pillow and boom, there it is again, running through my mind, just like a song on repeat. And we wrestle with these thoughts. And we just can't seem to get over the sorrow on our hearts, 
no matter what we do. And then David's last question here, the end of verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It focuses on what may have been the main cause of his crisis here, that is his enemy. Now, who was this enemy that David was referring to? Well, we aren't sure. David doesn't tell us in the psalm. Neither does the, the prescript give us a context for when the psalm was written. It could have been King Saul. It, King Saul was pursuing him, trying to, trying to kill him for months. It, it could have been during the conflict with David's son Absalom later in his life. Absalom, of course, was also trying to kill him and take over the throne from David. It could have been many other enemies. I mean, a king never lacked for enemies. For us, Satan is constantly trying to take us down, to destroy our faith, and to lead us to destroy ourselves by tempting us with sin. But there's one thing we need to keep in mind here as we consider David's questions. That is, when we are in the darkness of a trial. We're in the midst of the darkness of a trial. We cannot see reality clearly. Just can't. We so often uh, think our problem is much bigger than it actually is, or we are easily led to believe that God, who can do all things, and nothing is too difficult for him, but we're led to believe that, that God is, for some reason, unable to help us in the situation. And we tend to get so focused on the problem in front of us that we can't see the reality of the situation clearly. We easily forget God's word and what he has said about the purpose of trials. And we forget his promises to us to never leave us and never forsake us. One pastor I read put it like this. He said, we must resist any temptation to allow perception to rule revelation. That is God's word. We must resist any temptation to allow our perception of what's happening to rule over revelation in times of confusion. So don't allow your circumstances or how you feel to determine for you, what's really happening, what's really going on. Look to what God has revealed in his word to, to guide you, to give you a foundation to stand on in the midst of a trial, and to give you the lens to look through to be able to decipher what is true and what is false in your situation. Or what you should believe and what you should reject as a lie. And this is exactly what we begin to see David do in the rest of the psalm. We go now to verses 3 and 4, the second section here. Fight for faith through prayer. That's what we see revealed here in the second section. Fight for faith through prayer. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, even though David was feeling like God had abandoned him. He accused the Lord of forgetting him and hiding from him. Still David prays. Still David prays to the Lord and assumes the Lord is listening to him. He is showing that he actually believes the Lord is listening and is able to help him. 
So friends, this shows us something very crucial about David and, and about how to fight for faith. Even though David may have felt like he was abandoned by God, still he goes to God in prayer. He is falling back on his faith in God's promises and depending upon them in order to pray. This also shows that David already had a relationship with the Lord in which he would communicate with God through prayer. This was already an established habit for him. So what do we do when we are in the midst of a crisis? Well, it's natural for us just to continue to fall back on our daily habits. Throughout my ministry, I have sat with several different families in hospital rooms or nursing homes as they waited with a family member who was dying. Uh, these are very real and raw times. They are times when faith is put to the test. Uh, one family in, in, in particular, uh, the wife uh, and mother was dying of cancer. Her husband and her adult children all loved the Lord. One of the daughters was a missionary. As I sat with them, one of the children would, would quote different scriptures that she had been memorizing. Speak those words into the ear of her mother. Which, of course, we would all hear as well and be encouraged by. One of the son-in-laws, the, the one that was a missionary, would start playing his guitar and lead in the singing of a hymn or a worship song, and all the rest of the family members would just automatically join in and sing together with him. They all knew the words to the songs he was leading them in. It was very natural for them. Because memorizing the scriptures and hearing and singing those songs were almost daily habits for them. And I've been with other families, you know, all gathered around a dying loved one, and you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. No one prayed, no one sang. Each of them looked scared and incredibly uncomfortable. Some would, would step outside every so often in order to, to have a smoke. Others would stare at their phones and scroll through updates, not knowing what else to do. And so I would you know, share a passage from the Bible and, and pray out loud. And, and although they would be grateful, you could tell that, that that kind of practice just wasn't very familiar to them. In times of crisis, you fall back on your habits. And David's regular practice was to pray. Prayer is a regular habit of all who have faith in God. It's simply a natural thing that believers do. So although David was in a crisis of faith and he questioned whether or not God was even paying any attention to him, still he prays as if he assumes God will listen and, and that God will answer him. It, it is a habit that he falls back on. It's a wonderful habit. It is a faith-building habit. It's important for us to see that David had a personal relationship with God. He calls him, O Lord, which Lord there is the trans translation of the name for God. That's, that's Yahweh, the name for God, the covenant name of God. And he calls him my God. He knows him by his name, and he calls him my God. And he prays for help. He prays for the Lord to light up his eyes, which, which really is to give him life. Give him life so that he won't die. 
or give his, his faith life so it won't crumble. He asked the Lord to, to renew his energy in order to overcome his enemy. He's asking for, for life to be given to his heart, to his soul, and strength to be given to his body in order to continue to press on and endure through this trial. When David is in need of faith, what does he do? He prays. Now, we're just a couple of weeks away from everybody's favorite time of year in Nebraska, right? College football season is almost upon us. And from what I'm hearing, people are just a little more excited this year than they have been in the past few years. Now, in order to have a successful football season, Coach Frost stated that his players needed more strength. That's what he said at the end of last year. They needed more strength. They needed to put in more work in the weight room. And from what I hear, that's what they have done. In order to get stronger bodies, the players needed to exercise. They needed to work out their bodies in the weight room. And in Psalm 13, we see David doing a similar thing. David is in need of strong faith in the midst of his trial. And so in order to strengthen his faith, he exercises his faith. Prayer is an exercise of faith. When you pray, you're exercising your faith. We're exercising our faith in God that, that God is there, that, that, that he cares about us, and that God is able to help us. And that God knows all things and, and, and is sovereign over all things and can actually work in the world or in our hearts for good, for our good and the good of his people. That is what we believe when we pray. We exercise our faith as we pray. And one of the clear ways then to train ourselves for the fight of faith is to make prayer a regular daily habit. Talk to the Lord. Share your heart with the Lord as David does here. If you need help, read the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Get to know the Lord personally through praying. Exercise your faith by praying and your faith will increase. And lastly, in the last section, verses 5 and 6, we see that we are to fight with committed trust in God's gracious commitment to his people. But I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The mood definitely changes from verses 1 and 2 to verses 5 and 6, doesn't it? The mood has definitely changed. David now reveals his commitment to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord and that he, notice, he will rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. And again, in the future sense, he will sing to the Lord. Hebrew word that is translated as steadfast love, I've trusted in your steadfast love, this word has been translated in, in different ways because there really is no English word that captures all that this word entails, all that this word really, really stands for and means. So that's why the ESV, which is my translation, uses two words to translate it. It's not just love, it's steadfast love. Another translation uses 
the two words loving kindness. Another one uses the two words unfailing love. It is the Lord's committed covenant love for his people. As one pastor explained it, it's not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. And not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. It's not simply love, but love that has stick them on it. Love that refuses to let go. So David fights for faith by remembering the steadfast love of the Lord that he has promised his people. But how did David know about this steadfast love? How was David able to, 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 to grab in his mind the promise of God's steadfast love for his people? How did David know that the Lord has promised that he will forever be merciful and kind to his people? Well, David probably first heard about this from his parents. Just like many of us who have grown up in Christian homes. Just like, just like we do with our children, David's parents most, most likely had him memorize certain passages in the scriptures. And that has been a tradition amongst the Jewish people for their young, and it has also been a tradition for us as well. And one passage that David probably memorized was from Exodus 34, verse 6, where God reveals himself to Moses on the mountain, using these words to describe himself. This is what, what the Lord said to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, again, that's the name of God, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, of course, it's, it's important to remember the context for when the Lord described himself to Moses in that way. It was just after the Israelites had given their gold to Aaron and had him make a golden calf, which they all worshipped in a huge orgy in the desert. They had completely rejected the Lord their God, who had just saved them from the Egyptians through the crossing of the Red Sea. They all deserved to be destroyed and forsaken by the Lord, but what does the Lord do instead? the Lord renews his commitment to them, declaring his committed, unfailing, steadfast love to his people. The Lord gives them grace. This is what David recalls in the midst of his crisis of faith. He brings the scriptures to his mind and he holds on to the promises of God and he declares his faith that the Lord will save him. Why? Well, because the Lord promised to. Just like he's promised that he will save us from our enemy if we trust in his promise. That is how David fought for faith in the midst of his trial. And brothers and sisters, we could learn a lot about how to fight by paying attention to this. We could be taught how to fight by looking at this. When we partake of the Lord's table, we are reminded of how the Lord fully displayed his unfailing love to us. It is by 
by sending his only begotten son. The Lord Jesus, he came to faithfully live the life of obedience that we have all failed to live. And he laid down his life on the cross to be condemned for our sins and our place. On that cross, Jesus experienced what David feared in Psalm 13. As on the cross, the Son of God was forsaken by his Father. He was placed under the wrath of God for us. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. And whereas we consistently turn our backs on God, God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, never will turn his back on any believer who trusts in him. Again, the promise of of Scripture. He has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And this is why we can sing to the Lord. This is why we, this is why we, we sing when we worship. Because he has dealt bountifully with us through Jesus. And that's why we today can rejoice in the salvation that God has provided for us through the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Let's do that this morning through our time around the Lord's table.